Well, if you will, join me, please, in Luke chapter 15. Luke 15, as we continue along in our series in the Gospel of Luke, we find ourselves this morning in verses 11 through 32. Our title for our sermon this morning is A Tale of Two Sons. And our key words for our worshipers in training are Son, Father, and Love. Now, the text we are looking at this morning is very common. Perhaps uh, for many, it's been understood in a way that wasn't necessarily intended by Jesus when he spoke this parable. For others, I think it's quite likely for many that we've understood only part of the parable, but haven't gotten a good handle on the entirety of what Jesus is communicating to his hearers here. So my hope is that despite the familiarity with this parable, it's been said to be one of Jesus' greatest parables. It's certainly one of his most popular. Despite our familiarity with it, I hope we're able to look at it this morning with fresh eyes. And there's a reason why it's one of the most popular of Jesus' parables. It's rich. It's, It's very rewarding. It communicates some of the greatest truths of the Christian life. Some of the greatest truths we can know about God as our Father. But before we jump into verse 11, it's important that we are reminded of the context in which Jesus is speaking this parable. A reminder of what we looked at last week in the first two parables. But who is Jesus speaking to? That's very important. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 of Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus is surrounded by, at the very least, two very specific groups of people. One group has been identified as sinners and tax collectors. And the other group is those who are identified as Pharisees and scribes. So the distinction is very important that we understand these two groups of people. And we looked at them last week in the parable of the lost sheep and the the parable of the lost coin. So where we're going this morning, we need to see this distinction all the more. It is so important in the tale of two sons. All three of these parables in chapter 15 go together. They're all one unit. We understand in the way it reads that Jesus told them one after the other. But this is the capstone. This is the one that provides us with the clearest understanding of what's at stake for these two groups of people, both of whom, I will argue, are running from God. So let's look now, beginning in verse 11. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. Now, before we go on, I want to set the record straight right here in the first verse. It probably says in your Bible, just after verse 10 and just before verse 11, something like the parable of the prodigal son. Now, if you don't know this, it'll be helpful for you as you read. Those section headings, usually in bold print, are not inspired scripture. In other words, it wasn't written by the writers of the Bible. Those were added later. 
The same with the chapter and verse numbers and the names of all the books of the Bible. None of that is inspired, but it is helpful to us sometimes when we are studying our Bibles to have those things so the publishers put them in so we can follow along a little more systematically. However, that being said, sometimes because those headers are not inspired text, they aren't all that helpful in communicating what is actually going on in the text. And this is one of those instances. I want you to notice in verse 11 who Jesus says right off the bat who this parable is about. It doesn't say that it's about a man's son. It says there was a man who had two sons. This, we will see, is not a parable about one prodigal son. It's about two sons. So for some of you, that might be your first new insight of the day. Let's read on verse 12. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now the youngest of the man's two sons was clearly interested in one thing or rather clearly interested in one person, himself. He went to his father to ask for his share of the inheritance. So since the man had two sons, in their culture, the older would have received a double portion. He would have received two-thirds of the inheritance, while the younger would have received one-third. But there's a problem with the son asking for his portion of the inheritance, When do we receive an inheritance? That's the problem. His father was still alive. Now, we may shake our heads. We recognize the loveless, self-centered lack of compassion that this young man is showing toward his father. But it's far worse and far more offensive than you and I can probably imagine. What he's saying to his father is the equivalent of saying, I want your stuff, but I do not want you. I wish you were dead. And those who were listening to Jesus' parable would have instantly thought, well, the father's going to drive his son out of the house. He's going to disown him. He has to. He's obligated to do that. He cannot stand for this. And it would have been a closed case in their eyes. A son disrespecting his father in such a way the father needs to get him out of his house. There was no other option for them, and they certainly did not expect what came next. But what Jesus says happens between the father and his youngest son is quite different. Look again at the second part of verse 12. The father divided his property among them. The father did what his son was asking, and he gave him his portion. But you see, again, this is more difficult than we might recognize. The wealth of a first century patriarch wasn't kept in a bank. It wasn't a paper currency, and he couldn't just write his son a check. 
It was his property. It was his resources. It was all of his goods. So in order for the father to give one-third of his overall estate to his son, he had to sell off something and give his son all of the proceeds. It took a lot for the father to give to the son what he was asking. It came at a tremendous cost in terms of assets. But more devastatingly, it came at the great cost of the father losing his son. His son had just told him, I do not care about you. I care about what I can get from you. Devastating. So what do we see happens with the son after he receives payment from the father? Jesus tells us in verse 13, he squandered his property in reckless living. Now, if this was today, he probably would have taken his money and moved to New York City and bought a BMW and got some custom-made suits from a store on Fifth Avenue, got a Gucci man bag to carry around. He would eat at the finest restaurants. He would pay the uh, the highest dollar for female escorts. And everyone would tell him he was a man of good taste. People would clamor to be around him. They would laugh at his jokes. They would listen to his stories. And he could buy anything, and he did it. He even bought other people. The prodigal life in his mind was great. It was great for a while. He was more popular than ever before, but the lifestyle began to eat away at his soul. And not only at his soul, his resources began to run out. The newer the pleasure, the deeper the degradation. And then it all comes to an end. Why? Because the money ran out. And it was in the midst of a severe famine in the land. For the first time ever in his life, he was, Jesus tells us in verse 14, in need. You see, before this, the father had provided everything that he could possibly need. And then after he left his home, he had enough money to buy whatever he wanted, at least for a while. But while his money ran out, the land also dried up and he was in need. And Jesus's explicit description of what happened next would have made his audience gasp. Verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Literally, he glued himself to a Gentile as a servant. A horrible humiliation for the Jews. He was a day laborer. He was, he was at the lower end of the servants. And his work, his work was feeding pigs. It was an unspeakable degradation for a Hebrew, a Jewish swine herder. And he worked for a non-Jewish man doing the most unclean and most unsavory of work. Furthermore, Jesus tells us he was so far down the road of having no food and no provision. Verse 16, he tells us he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Imagine the picture. He's feeding the pigs. He's seeing the slop he puts before them. And he begins to think, That looks pretty good. I think I want to eat some of that. And there he was amongst a whole host of pig snouts and curly tails when just a few months prior, everyone loved him. 
Or so he thought, anyway. You see, it turns out all of the people that surrounded the prodigal son wanted from him the very thing he wanted from his father. They wanted his stuff, not him. They didn't want his love. They didn't want his companionship. They didn't want his friendship. They wanted his stuff, his wealth. And now look at him. He has nothing. Therefore, he has no one. No one would even give him a husk to chew on. He had sought freedom. He thought he had found it. But now he is working as a slave. Now, I want to say to our young people, to our teenagers, so often I hear language from some of you somewhere along the lines of, I can't wait to get out of here. I can't wait to move out of my parents' house. I am so ready to go. I want the life of the prodigal to be a lesson to you and to remember the effect of your words in the hearts of your parents. There's nothing wrong with wanting to progress into the next stage of life, but at what cost would you like that to come? Is it possible that you're communicating to your parents that you would rather have freedom and stuff than you would them? That you don't need their provision and their care? That's what this son thought. But in the end, he was caught up with the pigs. He was left empty-handed. And so the scriptures teach us the importance of being patient, walking with humility, giving thanks to God for all that he has provided by his hand through the merciful, loving care of our parents. You need them. And because you have them, you are not found to be in need. I know all of you. I know none of you are suffering. None of you are in great need. You have a great blessing. Enjoy it. Thank God for it. And don't press too hard to get rid of it. Now, Jesus shows us here that sometimes hardships have a way of opening people's eyes. Sometimes we recognize it takes really bad circumstances to bring a person to repentance and faith. Sometimes it takes God removing every last vestige of comfort in our lives that we will look to him in faith. That's what happens with this son. Let's look in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. What an incredible change of heart. This is where we see genuine repentance in the prodigal's life. In 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul writes about repentance and he describes when someone comes to repentance, they will come to their senses and escape from the trap. That's what we see here, isn't it? Repentance. Coming to your senses. That's what we're talking about. Coming to a right frame of mind. And if you want an experience, a true experience of communion with God, at the very heart of it is 
repentance. Now think of the people listening to Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes. They thought repentance was only necessary when they really, really screwed up and they did something that everyone else could see externally. Then they would have repentance. It was very abnormal in their lives because in their minds they were mostly good people. Those are the people who would come and say, I'm okay, you're not okay, you're immoral, I'm moral. The reason I know God likes me and loves me and will answer my prayers is because I'm a good person. That was their mindset. Now the sinners, the other group, those who were relativists, thought this idea of repentance was a foolish notion. Their mindset is that at very best, perhaps, that God embraces everyone just as they are, and he only condemns the very worst of sinners. And so when you talk to someone like this about the love of God, it's just a sentiment. It's just a feeling. It's just an idea. They see themselves as lovable. They see themselves as worthy. And there's no transformation. There's no change. So you see the difference between Christ's paradigm and the other two is the centrality of repentance. Even in the way he describes it. Look at this. Come to your senses. You see, that's not what happens with a Pharisee or someone locked in their sin. They don't come to their senses. But notice what we see with the prodigal. He doesn't say, I should have never spent all of that money. I should have never spent my time and my money with prostitutes. I know it's wrong. I knew it was wrong then. I know it's wrong now. And I'm, I'm just sorry about that. That's not coming to your senses. Coming to your senses means you become sane. In other words, it's like looking at the whole world differently. You get a new set of eyes. Coming to your senses is true repentance. New eyes to see, new ears to hear. It's coming to look at everything differently. The language of repentance is, how could I have been so blind? How could I have been so ungrateful? How could I have missed what is so obvious? That's repentance. It sees everything differently. Now, it's important for us to remember what the sheep taught us in the parable last week about sin. That sin is essentially a running away from God in an attempt to run and control our own lives. Sin is about authority. It's not just about violating rules. It's about running from God in order to take our own control of our own lives. That's the very reason why he says, I will go back to my father. I've ran from him and now I must return to him. Sin is to do whatever it takes to be able to say, God, I am in charge of my life and you are not. I am my own judge. I am my own master. And you cannot tell me how to live my life. Now, here's what's so interesting. Of all the things that Jesus could have possibly done and all the stories he could possibly come up with in order to show us the essence of sin... He didn't present to us in his parable a murderer or a rapist or a thief. He came up with someone who said, Father, give me my life and just leave me alone. 
So at this point, the hearers of Jesus on the one hand would have known what he was asking for, the son was asking for from his father, was technically okay. There was nothing actually illegal about it. It was his. It literally was his. 33% of all of his father's assets were his. However, we know it was unbelievable that he would ask for it. It was outrageous that he would go to him with such a request. He wanted complete independence. And this shattered all of the prevailing ideas that these people listening to Jesus would have had about sin. So the younger brother here now sees what he has done. He comes to his senses and he realizes basically what we see David says in Psalm 51. Against you and you alone have I sinned. He comes to his senses and he recognizes how he has fractured his relationship with his father. You see, coming to our senses in true repentance means seeing that we are running from God and our attempt is to control our own lives. Friends, some of you here this morning are running from God. Some of you are seeking your own way, the way that seems right in your own eyes. You're rejecting the ways of God and all of his wisdom because you think you are wise. You think you are able to control what goes on in your life. You think you're able to determine what is good and right for your own personal gain. And I promise you that will not end well for you. The important call in your life is to repent of your sin, to come to your senses and to rest in Jesus Christ, to stop running from him. I pray that God would cause you to come to your senses, to trust in him and his work on your behalf, that you would be cleansed by the blood of Jesus, to stop running, to trust in Christ. We see with the prodigal here, when he went off, he squandered his money in wild living. He was out of control. Do you know why he's out of control? Here's the great irony. Whenever you try with all of your might to get control of your life by running away from God, you end up giving away control of your life to all sorts of other things. What are you trusting in? Where are you finding hope and help in your life? You see, the prodigal son realized his hope wasn't in the life he was seeking to live. He realized in the end that his hope was in the father. Not his father's stuff, but the father himself. And so he repents and he makes a plan to return home. And so the question is then, how does the father respond? Look at verse 20. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. 
we get the picture here that day by day by day as he was gone, the father sat in his house and he scanned the horizon looking for the return of his son. He loved him. He missed him. He longed for him. And though covered with rags, something familiar about him as he walked onto the property caught the father's eye. It's him. I must go to him. And immediately he was filled with compassion. That is, he was so overcome with joy that he had a physical reaction and he ran out to his son. Would have been very undignified for a a stately older man to run out to someone. But he literally throws his arms around him. And the way the Greek explains it here, it demands that we understand that he kisses him again and again and again and again. And the son is here embraced by his father, being kissed and loved by his father. He's ashamed and he blurts out his rehearsed confession, but the father cuts him off and he calls the greatest party he has ever had to be thrown The father had his servants bring the best robe, a long garment that reached down to his feet. The kind only worn by kings. He called for a ring to be thrust onto his son's finger, symbolic of his sonship. And finally, new sandals were strapped to his callous feet. The father's slaves may have gone barefoot, but not his son's. Brothers and sisters, this is the picture of our Father. This is our Father. He lavishes His love upon His children. This is the gospel. This is the good news of a God who rushes to meet sinners with love and compassion and care and granting us sonship, putting the ring on our finger. And no one is beyond God's love. You cannot do anything that will keep God if you are his child, from kissing you and bestowing upon you the robe and the ring and the sandals. Utter and total and complete forgiveness is the only kind that God gives. And there are only two qualifications for this forgiveness. First, we must see ourselves before we can see God. We must recognize that we are wayward sons if we are to recognize his love. And if we know that we are, we can know his love. We must see ourselves as the lost son. And then we must come home. You see, the joy of the party described here is no exaggeration. However, Like all earthly illustrations of a spiritual reality, it falls short. Jesus says, remember we looked at last week in verse 7, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Tears of repentance. It's the joy of all the angels of heaven. There is an uproarous heavenly joy and it is real. But as we will see in this parable, not everyone was happy about the brother's return home and his repentance. Let's look at verse 25. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. 
And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that this is, that is mine, is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So the older brother had been out in the field working. In fact, he was always out there working. And as he was coming in for the day, most likely prepared to tell his father how much work he had gotten done, he heard the unaccustomed sound of dancing and music. And he summoned one of the servants who told him the great news. Master, it is your brother. It's wonderful. Your kid brother has come home. He's showing a little wear and tear, but he is okay. I am so happy to be the first one to let you know. But for the brother, it is far from good news. Rather than joining the party, Jesus tells us in verse 28, he was angry. This carries the idea of a swelling, settled anger. You can think of sap that rises up in a tree on a hot day. He was boiling He was seething. He absolutely refused to go in. And so the father does what he always does. He comes to his son. He came out to him. He encouraged him again and again to share in the celebration. But the older son finally exploded. Notice he won't even acknowledge his brother as his brother. He speaks to his father in a condescending tone and tells him, look, listen to me. You see, the reality of the older brother's heart was now being revealed. The young son had been far from the father in a distant country because of a hedonistic self-determination to live life on his own. But the older son was even further away from his father than his younger brother, and he never even left the farm. You understand what Jesus is saying here? Jesus says this man has two sons, and they are both alienated from the father. He has a good son, and he has a bad son. He had a hard-working moral son, and he had a selfish, immoral son, and they are both alienated from the father, and they are both alienated from God. You see, Jesus is not saying simply that both good people and bad people are lost. He's going further than that. That would be bad enough. He's not just saying that a good person, the elder brother, the good moral person is lost despite his goodness. He is saying here that the good and moral brother is alienated from God because of his goodness. You see, your goodness is more of a barrier between you and God than your badness. Why? 
I, I know saying that doesn't make sense to a lot of you. Because the reality is, all of your life you've probably heard that that's what the gospel is. Do these things and God will be happy with you and don't do these things or else God will be mad. Do good, don't do bad. Do right, don't do wrong. I hear it all the time. I hear people talking about their friends or their neighbors or their family members and they say, well, he's a good guy. He's a good person. He's trying to do right. I just want to say, don't you see that's the problem? That's the issue. It's not that he's doing wrong and needs to do right. It's that he thinks he can do right. And in doing right, he thinks he's going to be able to use that good to his advantage before God. I've done all the right things. And now God owes me something. I've made good decisions. I've provided for my family. I've taken my kids to church. I've put food on the table. I pay my bills on time. I help my elderly neighbor cut the grass. I call my mom every Saturday and on and on and on and on. But you know what? It's a huge problem. Let me tell you, especially in our context... In southern Christianity, there's often another gospel being preached. And it's all about being good. And it's all about doing right. But that's not the gospel. That's moralism. That's not the gospel of grace. You see, God is not looking for you and me to be made good. He's looking for you and me to be made new. The Bible doesn't say you're bad and you need to be made good. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The Bible says prior to walking in Christ, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. That none is righteous, that no one does good. So Jesus is blowing the doors off the house of moralism. It doesn't work. It's a satanic lie that's captivated the hearts and the minds of so many of our neighbors. And it looks like what the Apostle Paul says, that people will have a form of godliness. In other words, they have an external adherence to something that might appear to them as though there is godliness, but in reality, their hearts are cold and dead to Jesus. In other words, they want what Jesus gives but they don't want Jesus himself. So in the end, what we see of the two brothers is this. The younger brother is trying to get control by leaving and disobeying. The elder brother is trying to get control by staying and obeying. And they're both lost and they're both alienated from the father. And each of them is saying, I would like your things, but I would not like you. That's the essence of what sin is. The essence is saying, I want to be my own master and my own judge and my own savior. And I wish you, Father, were dead. You see, the only difference between the two in the end is that the son who nobody expected to see repent is the one who ends up coming to his senses. Here's the deal, and I really hope that we all see this. We need to see here that all of us have a need to repent for something more in our lives than sins, plural. It's not about the list. 
You see, the younger brother didn't care about the list. If he had the list, his sins. The older brother doesn't think he has a list because he's always going about doing good. So how does a person who doesn't have a list get saved? Now, of course, there are sins to be repented of. But when Pharisees sin, they, they repent. Or they admit they did something externally wrong. But when they're done, guess what? They're still Pharisees. They're moralists. But here's the difference between Christians and moralists. Christians also repent for their wrongdoing, but Christians also repent for the reasons we do things right. What does that mean? Well, you may not want to admit it in your life, but you know exactly what that means. It means we need to recognize that quite often our reason for doing good is self-justification. It is a desire to control God and a desire to control others. But when you begin to see this, it changes everything about you, the way you live, the way you relate to God. It's called the new birth because it is so radical. It takes the initiating love of God and true repentance. And then our hearts are melted and moved by what it costs to bring us home. So what's the key difference here? The key difference is motivation. The Pharisees want God in order to get things. Christians want God to get God. Because Christians have had their hearts melted. Christians have seen something that produces radical change. And verse 31 is the hint here. Everything I have is yours. Now all that the father had belonged to the elder brother. Every robe, every ring, every calf. And it already did because that was his portion of the inheritance. The younger brother could only come home at the enormous cost, the enormous expense of the elder brother. Think about it. The younger brother had already taken and spent his inheritance. So all that was left was for the older brother in the end. And so from here on out, every dime that's spent on the younger brother came at the cost of his older brother. You see, it's not simple to be saved. It costs the elder brother a tremendous amount. He has to pay. And this elder brother is furious about it. Now, why does Jesus put such a nasty elder brother in our story? He's showing the Pharisees what they're really like. Because what would a true elder brother have done? He would have seen the agony of his father and he would have said, Father, I'm going out to look for my brother. And even if he has ruined himself and squandered all that you gave him, I will bring him home, even at my own expense. That would have been a true elder brother. But sadly, the younger brother didn't have that kind of older brother. But brothers and sisters, we do. We do. Jesus Christ gives us a bad elder brother so that we will long for the right one. We don't need an elder brother who will just go to the next town and search for us and find us. We need an elder brother who will come from heaven to earth to seek us out and to save us. We need an elder brother who brings us into God's family, not at the cost of his wallet, but at the cost of his life. He is that elder brother. 
on the cross, Jesus was stripped naked that we would be clothed in the finest robes of our Father. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God! He didn't say, My Father, because He was not being treated as a son so that you and I could be treated as sons and daughters. On the cross, Jesus paid the debt that we know that we owe. Everything that he had was the Father's, and yet he puts it all. He puts it all aside. All of his rights, all of his privileges are on the line that he could bring us home. And when we see that, when we truly see what God has done in Jesus, we will no longer be concerned with running out into the world for self-discovery and hedonism, nor will we seek to live our lives simply in moral conformity to win something. We will instead be true, faithful Christians who want God, who want communion with God more than anything else in life. Now, there's some of you here this morning who are younger brother types. You think, the problem with the world, the problem with the church is religion and moralism and hypocrisy. You know what Jesus says to this? He says, you know what? You're right. That is a problem. But you know, your self-discovery isn't working all that well for you, is it? Everywhere you turn, you find trouble. You find hardship, you find tension, you find that you continue to make bad decisions and you end up with bad results. So you might say, well, I don't want to walk into Christianity then because that's just another religion. And Jesus then says, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. And I hope you'll take the time to search that out. Christianity isn't like anything else that you will encounter in the world. If you think it's just another religion, you're wrong. Listen, I realize that some of you have had lousy homes. You may have had the kind of father who would have responded completely opposite of what we see here. I get that, but here's the deal. The love of God in Jesus Christ is the kind of love that you need. You need the love of the greatest of all fathers. Secondly, the parable is mainly about the elder brother. And more than the younger brother, in this room there are probably more elder brothers. Jesus is speaking to Pharisees and inviting them to listen to this parable and to respond. And I wonder if we're willing to honestly evaluate whether or not we have the hearts of elder brothers. Maybe you're mad at people who have hurt you. Or you're mad at classes of people who don't meet your standards. You feel like your life isn't going the way you want it to, even though you're, sp- you're supposed to be the good one of the bunch. You get mad when you're not recognized for something that you've done. You get mad when you're not acknowledged for your accomplishments. You get mad about all sorts of things and people, and they walk on eggshells around you because of it. You probably do good and nice things for other people, but if you're honest, you know full well in your heart that it's so that you can manipulate and so that you can use it to win points and so that you can use it to win praise. For you, it's impossible to do good works without a single soul knowing it was you who did it. Giving gifts, doing a project, providing a service is just not possible for you to do anonymously. 
And if you do, you have the agonizing pain of knowing that nobody knows it was you. So maybe you make some passive remark on social media about how you love doing anonymous good deeds for people. And then you can keep it in your back pocket. So the next time that person ever crosses you, you can pull it out and use it against them. You see how wicked our supposed goodness can really be? And the reason, if this is you, the reason you're so unhappy is because of your goodness. You're mad at God and you're mad at people because I try hard. I do good works. I get no recognition. I get no reward. And your response is often, and since nobody pays me any attention, since nobody seems to care, I'm not going to do anything at all. And so you're miserable. And you're like the older brother, especially when someone else gets the credit. Friend, if this is you, I'm sorry to say that your heart is darkened. It's very possible that you're not actually a Christian because you've bought into one of Satan's greatest devices, the destructive, damning lie of moralistic goodness. And so the call on all of us is to lay our goodness down at the feet of Jesus, to repent of those things that we do in order to try and earn his favor and to manipulate those around us and to find our hope, to find our rest, to find our joy, to find our assurance and our satisfaction in Christ alone. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to be a church that believes that this is Christianity, we're always going to be misunderstood. Some things we do or say are going to sound very liberal. Other things we say and do are going to sound very conservative. So people will say, that sounds legalistic. Or that sounds like what you're saying is do whatever you want to do. And the tendency is always to try and stick us in human categories. But ultimately, you cannot stick a church who cares about these things into those categories. Jesus, who is our true elder brother, won't allow those things to be us. It's the same reason why Paul preached about the incredible, lavish, free, saving grace of God and the complete inability of man to do anything to receive it or to earn it or to have it. But in his love for us, for his glory alone, people were saying, what well, seems like what you're saying is that we should just sin all the more so that in our sin we can highlight God's grace. They didn't get it. They did not get it. Listen, Christians will obey God. Christians will do good works. Christians will love God's law and seek to fulfill it in their lives. But the motivation isn't themselves. The motivation is a thankful overflow of God's sovereign goodness and kindness toward us. Jesus tells us if we love him, we will do what he commands. But what is our motivation? You cannot earn God's love. You cannot manipulate God through your good works. But when you love him and he loves you, your life will show it. Brothers and sisters, he has run to you. And he has crowned you his son or his daughter if you are in Jesus Christ. And all that he has is yours at the expense of our elder brother, Jesus Christ. And for that reason, we must give thanks to God. We must give thanks to Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, our sacrificial lamb, 
our closest of friends, and our elder faithful brother. Let's pray together. God, we delight in knowing that you are our Father. That if we are your children, that you ran to us and you put on us the finest of robes, you gave us the ring of sonship, you put sandals on our feet, you have crowned our heads as sons and daughters of the Most High King. And it has all come at the expense of our elder brother, Jesus Christ, who didn't get angry that the penalty was to be paid by him, who didn't bemoan the fact that the Father has received us and shown us great love, but rather who willingly, gladly, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross and suffered the shame that we might be called sons and daughters of the Most High God. Father, thank you. Thank you for calling us to see the reality of our hearts. For those who are running from you because they don't want anything to do with you and they just want what you give and are living their lives recklessly, Father, bring them to the end of themselves that they might see their need for Christ. For those who day by day are seeking to do work after work after work, to be good people and do good things so that they can earn your favor and so that they can use those works to manipulate others and to get accolades and to be praised by man. Father, cause them to repent of their goodness. Because we recognize in the end, Father, that our salvation, our hope, is found in Christ alone. In nothing we can do, in nothing that we can offer. It's in Christ alone. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the reality that you have made us your own. That you have made a way for us to move from darkness into light and to find new life, not good life, but new life in Jesus Christ. With new eyes to see, with new ears to hear, and with new hearts of flesh that understand. Help us to see, to love, to hear Jesus and him alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen.